safe uh, delivery as well. This morning as we begin, actually, I'm going to start uh, with our passage of Scripture. And so I know we were all just standing, but if you could navigate to John chapter 7, I'm going to actually invite you to stand as we begin and we'll read our passage uh, in question this morning. And it's from John chapter 7, verses 40, or excuse me, 37 through 50, 52. John 7, verses 37 through 52. Hear the word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified." When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The climax of John 7 that we've been studying here, this is the last section. The climax of John 7, I believe, is found in verses 37 through 39. The drama of the chapter reaches a crescendo with Jesus' words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you've been here the past three weeks, you know that leading up to this point, opinions about Jesus have been divided, hence the name of our series through John 7, Divided Opinions. There's little consensus about who Jesus is And why he came. Now, for it's not for lack of knowledge, or it's not for a lack of knowledge that people have come to different opinions about Jesus, Jesus, for his part, has been very clear about who he is and why he came. As we've seen, he's he's given us these four assertions that is, his instructions are God's instructions, his actions are good. His connections are grand, and his expedition is glorious. And we've studied all of that for the last two weeks. Jesus has made it very clear that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the one promised from Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent. If, as I've said, verses 37 through 39 are the climax of this passage, climax of John 7, then the setting only confirms it. Recall that John 7 takes place during the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. This is one of three principal feasts 
celebrated by the Jews and was actually the most celebrated of the three. I've already mentioned this to you. The Jews called this eight-day celebration the season of their gladness. The feast was so important, in fact, that the prophet Zechariah, he prophesies that in the millennial kingdom, God's people will celebrate the Feast of Booths. In weeks past, I've told you that this feast and the people that celebrated this feast camped out in tents, hence the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It was named for that practice. It, this was done to remember God's provision and His protection during the Exodus. What I haven't told you about is, or are the, the ceremonies, some of the ceremonies that the Israelites participated in during this Feast of Booths. In addition to building tents, the Jews participated in a ritual at the temple that commemorated the Exodus. Those who participated would bring a citrus fruit in their left hand, maybe a lemon or an orange, and a lulab in their right hand. What is a lulab? Well, the lulab was a combination of three branches. Maybe you've seen this before, I don't know. The lulab, with its different branches, represented the different stages of their wilderness journey. They would have a small palm branch, a willow branch, and a, a myrtle branch, and they would tie them together kind of as a, like a fan, it looked like. The fruit, of course, represented God's blessing. Together, these items served to commemorate God's provision during Israel's Exodus journey. Now, in each morning of the festival, the pilgrim would bring these items to the temple where the priests would hold up a golden pitcher. With the crowd gathered, the priest made his way to the pool of Siloam, while the crowd chanted a series of psalms and waved, waved their lulabs in rhythm. When the priest arrived at the pool, he would dip the pitcher in the water, and the people would recite Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With a pitcher full of water from the pool, the priest would return to the temple and enter the, the temple area through the, the water gate, and there would be a blast of trumpets or the shofar, which is like a ram's horn that they would blow, and it would sound like a trumpet. Priest would make his way to the altar. He would circle the altar, and then he would pour the water out upon the altar. This happened every day of the feast, except for the last day. They altered this practice a little bit. On the final day of the feast, the great day of the feast, priest would uh, circle the altar seven times, and he would be joined by another priest with a pitcher of wine. It'd be two priests. They would go around the altar seven times, one with water and one with wine. Both priests would ascend the ramp to the altar and prepare to pour, however, before they would pour, a hush would go over the crowd, and as they raised the, the pitcher higher and higher, the crowds would shout. They would shout out for the priest to hold it higher and higher and higher. And so you can imagine this great throng of people as they're raising these pitchers higher and higher and higher before they poured out the fluid upon the altar. Now, to witness this ceremony, it maybe seems, I don't know, mundane to us, a little silly, but for the Israelites, this was a, a very high part of their religion. In, fa in fact, it was considered really the height of Israel life to witness this actually happen during the, we the, the great day of the Feast of Booths. Maybe a bad analogy, I don't know, but something like seeing the change of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Maybe something like that. 
for the outdoorsy person, maybe something like witnessing old faithful blow. For the backyard astronomer, maybe something like seeing the planets align. You might say for the Jews, the stars aligned during the feast of Booths. Now, while the text, of course, doesn't give us the exact moment that Jesus said these words, you have to believe that Jesus placed these words in the most salient moment. I can't prove it, of course. I don't know exactly how it took place, but certainly possible that as the crowd waited for the priest to pour that water on the altar, Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And, of course, with these words, Jesus gives us the first of three actions that cause us to examine our responses to Jesus. And that is our big idea this morning. Three actions cause us to examine our response to Jesus. And this is the first action. I'm going to call this first action the request of the Redeemer, and it comes in these verses I've just read, the request of the Redeemer. Notice that John tells us that Jesus stood up and cried out. Well, this certainly adds to the drama. Teachers in Jesus' day, we've said this before, they would sit down to teach. So this is Jesus changing his posture to make a point, you might say. He changed his posture. He, he used his body to better illustrate the weight of his words. And when John says he cried out, he means that. He used a loud voice. He was emphatic. Using his body and his words, he makes sure that the maximum amount of people can hear him and see him. You know what it feels like to be thirsty. You live in Bakersfield. Those listening to Jesus would have also known what it feels like to be thirsty. They lived also in a hot and a dry climate. Even more, the ancient Israelites, they understood thirst. Remember, all of this is commemorating the Exodus. In fact, Exodus 17, 3 says, But the people thirsted. They thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. You remember this. And they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? As bad as it was in Egypt, at least we had water. But you've brought us out here and we have no water. And so we're going to die of thirst. Do you remember how the Lord through Moses answered their complaint? Well, he told Moses, and Moses told the people, behold... I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And what happened? Everybody drank. The nation of Israel stood under the hot sun, the hot sun, and upon the dry earth. They were gasping for water. They cried out for water, and the Lord brought water from a rock. Paul tells us something very fascinating in 1 Corinthians. He draws a connection between that rock and Jesus. He actually says that the rock was a spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Understand this. 
in the way that Israel found their physical needs met in a physical rock, will you and I, the people here that Jesus is speaking to, find their spiritual needs met in the rock of Christ? What exactly does it mean to come to Jesus and drink? Well, I think it means the very same thing as we studied earlier in John chapter 6 and verse 51. When Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He says in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. To eat the bread, to eat the flesh of Christ, to drink his blood, to drink his water, all of these are the same. They are pictures that call us to take in Jesus, to throw ourselves upon Jesus, to believe in Him, to trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, He expects that some will. Yes, it is a conditional statement, but it expects something from that person. And so in this sense, it's a request. If anyone thirsts, and I know that some will, is what Jesus is saying, then come to me and drink. Believe in me, and I will end your thirst. Everyone thirsts for something. We know this. Therefore, the question is more about what we're drinking than whether or not we're thirsty. Of course we're thirsty. Here's what Jeremiah referred to in chapter 2, verse 13 of his book. For my people have committed two evils, he says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. God calls himself the fountain of living waters. They have forsaken me. What have they done? They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is the fountain of living waters. And what do we do? We build cisterns. We build our own things that hold water. We fashion cisterns that cannot hold water. We take in things that leave us baked, burned, and bone dry. A new wardrobe. A new car. A new experience. Whatever. We're reaching for anything and everything that ad- advertised, that is advertised to quench our thirst. But as soon as we've swallowed, as, su- as soon as we've swallowed that thing in, whatever the world might offer us, our lips crack and our tongue is dry. I quote Augustine from time to time. I love this sentence of his. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. How true it is. How often do the the Psalms confirm this? We read that this morning in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That's written by someone who understands. A true satisfaction can only be found in God. When he sees the deer panting for water, He sees an illustration of the need that he has to drink from the brook. 
How about Psalm 63? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It's not the physical body that will be full. It's the soul. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. I wish I could say that. There's nothing on earth. There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What powerful psalms these are. Psalm 27, Psalm 28, Psalm 32, Psalm 33, Psalm 37, Psalm 45, 84, 119, 138. It goes on and on and on. Over and over again, the psalmist is crying out, my soul needs you. And confessing, I've sought other things. I've built cisterns of my own. Jonathan Edwards was right when he wrote, without holy affection, there is no true religion. It has to touch us inside. We have to desire it. We have to feel it. That's why we eat and we drink. Because they're so real to us. Edwards was right. God created us to desire. We're created to desire. I've said this before. The only reason why God created us to hunger after food is to illustrate what it looks like to hunger after God. There'd be no other reason. It's precisely this reason. So we can draw this out and we can can, uh, tap into this. The the hunger that you feel, the thirst that you feel when your belly is empty and your lips are dry, the, the satiation that comes after you eat or after you drink is a picture of what it looks like to drink from God, to eat His bread, to eat His flesh, to be full of Him. All of that is an illustration. We know what it feels like to be full. We know what it feels like to be stuffed Maybe too much. But do we know what it feels like to eat and drink from the living God? From the rock of Christ? Verse 38. Jesus gives us the result of drinking the water that Jesus offers. He says, whoever believes in me... As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of our hearts, you might say, will flow rivers of living waters. And John tells us in verse 39 that Jesus here is speaking of the coming Holy Spirit. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus makes a point later in the book that when when he leaves, when Jesus leaves, he will send the Holy Spirit. 
There's a kind of a theme that happens throughout the book of, of John, and it's developed later in the book that you, we begin to see that Jesus is going to go away. He's not going to come back. But he's not going to, but don't worry. I'm not going to leave you empty or void because when I go, something else, someone else is coming, namely the Holy Spirit. And so he says, John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. That's interesting. I wonder how they would have heard that. To my advantage. (laughs) Yes, it is to your advantage. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, he says, Jesus, I will send him to you. And who is that helper? That's the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about there. This coming of the Holy Spirit is one of the unique aspects of what we call, we might call the church age or the new covenant. This is the period of time we're currently in between the ascension of Christ and the Lord's return. So we have this unique period of redemptive history where the Holy Spirit has come and he stays, which is unique in the period in the story of redemption. Before this, the Holy Spirit might come down, but he only comes down for a moment and then he leaves, which is why David can say, Lord, don't, leave your, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. He prays in the Psalms. We don't pray that prayer. That's an Old Testament prayer. That's David's prayer. But we, don't, we pray a different prayer. You know, we abide in the Spirit, but the, the Spirit is indwelling in us now. So that's what Jesus is saying. I go away, but don't worry, the Helper is going to come. And that's part of that new covenant ministry, is that the Holy Spirit now is indwelling inside of us, which is what is, Jesus is talking about here with the rivers of living water that are flowing This is its effect. The effect of the indwelling spirit is what Jesus is speaking of in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, again, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The imagery of the heart here that Jesus uses is that of a self-replenishing stream. Recall what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4. He said something similar, John 4, 14. The water I will give him, that is the one who believes, Jesus says, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In the heart of the believer, there's a deep well. And this water not only wells up, as he says in John 4, but out of which rivers of living water flow, here in verse 38. In effect, the water wells up to nourish us, and then it wells out to nourish others. I'm sure you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, probably heard of that. The scrolls were discovered in some caves in Qumran, a place called Qumran. This is kind of on the coast of the Dead Sea, uh, the northwest kind of region of the Dead Sea there. And an interesting story about how those were found. There were some, some young shepherds that were kind of out there doing their shepherding thing, and they were throwing rocks up into some caves, and they heard a, you know, a crack and a bust, and it turned out to be some pottery up there. They climbed up there and looked, and sure enough, they found the biggest you know, loot of, scholar, of, of manuscripts ever to be found. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we call them. Well, as it turns out, these scrolls were owned and protected by a group of people that had withdrawn from the city and into the wilderness. This group of Qumran, in Qumran, they were ingrown. 
They retreated from the world and became lifeless and arid. They were like the Dead Sea. Just as the Dead Sea receives the Jordan River and gives nothing out, so the religious sect of Qumran, although they had the scriptures, they became a stagnant pool. And like the ever-dying Dead Sea, a pool that only receives dries up. On the contrary, the rivers of living water don't dry up. They never dry up because their source is the Holy Spirit and they flow to heal others. John Bunyan said, wrote, There was a man, the world did think him mad, the world did think him mad. The more he gave away, the more he what? The more he had. Kent Hughes writes, When our lives become stagnant and we begin to be introspective and focus upon ourselves, the remedy is not to concentrate on our own satisfaction, but on satisfaction in Christ seeking to flow through us. When we come to a wall in our spiritual lives, we need to look for avenues of service. We need to drink of the Holy Spirit so much that He flows out to others. End quote. We need to break through the dam, or, I don't know, go over the dam, whatever it is. Break through the dam of, of selfishness and pride to serve and, I might say, to be served by others. I'm sure you've heard it said that to be a Christian, you have to have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've probably heard that, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Of course, this is true. It's true in the sense that I can't have a relationship with Jesus through my parents. I can't have a, a relationship with Jesus through my kids. You can't have a relationship with Jesus through your church or through your pastor. So in that sense, it must be a personal relationship. The call is to you to, you to believe. You have to believe. In that sense, it's personal. It requires a decision from you. But that's about as far as we can take personal relationship. At the very moment we make a personal decision, we're connected to each other. We're members of the body of Christ. It's not personal anymore. We're commanded then to care for one another as members of Christ's body. We have been touched by God, and so we're compelled to touch others. As believers, we're channeling God's grace to others which is what I think Jesus is saying here. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Paul's helpful here. Ephesians 4, kind of the result of the Spirit in our lives. It's a picture of, of the change that happens within us, but then it overflows to the body. Ephesians 4, familiar passage, verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, Paul says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So because we've been transformed, now I'm going to put away falsehood and I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm going to speak truth to my neighbors. It's overflowing. It's nourishing others. Why? He says, we're members of one another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. I'm not going to hold a grudge against someone. That river is going to overflow into the life of the body. And so if, I have a, if I'm angry at someone, I'm going to go to them. I'm going to speak to them. I'm not going to harbor anger in my heart. He gives us a warning. Give no opportunity to the devil. Harboring anger in your heart is giving an opportunity to the devil. So don't let the sun go down in your anger. Let that, that, that well that's springing up to eternal life flow, seep over that dam and flow into other people's lives, nourishing them, not holding a grudge against them, not speaking falsehood to them. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. I, don't, I no longer steal, but I work hard so that, again, it overflows into the life of the body. So now I'm helping others. I want to work and have something and be a good steward so I can share what I have. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The speech that I use, again, I'm using my speech to build others up, to nourish others. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. All of that transformation in our life is pouring over into the, into the life of the body, to those other members, caring for them, nourishing them with that water. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us, loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. All of this is just a way of kind of illustrating what it looks like for rivers of living water to flow in and out of our heart. These words from Jesus in verses 37 and 38 are as true today as they were when Jesus spoke them. And so, here I believe we have the request of the Redeemer. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture says, out of his heart will flow liver, rivers of living water. Now I've divided the rest of the chapter into two parts. Verses that remain, verses 40 through 52. The first, verses 40 through 44, we'll find the second action that causes us to examine our response to Jesus. Let's call it the pondering of the people. The pondering of the people. Here again in John 7, we have divided opinions about Jesus. We've seen this over and over and over again in this chapter. Verse 40, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. There, there is a promise that Moses gives about a coming prophet. Of course, Moses was talking about the Christ but there's a lot of speculation in Jesus' day about who that was. And so many thought that this prophet was kind of an Elijah prophet that would come before the actual Messiah. And so those, these people are acknowledging that, wow, this man is special, but he's not the Messiah. He's just the prophet. In these are the crowds saying this. Some of the people is really the crowds. That's the idea. Verse 41, others, it says... They said that Jesus was the Christ. I think these ones are, 
are right. There, there are some who get it right, and so they're getting it right. No doubt the works and the words of Jesus convince them that Jesus is the Christ. John also tells us that still others, some, it says, believed him to be just a man. They pondered, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? These ones are misinformed. Apparently, they thought he was born in Galilee. He, was, he resided in Galilee, but he wasn't born in Galilee. He was actually born in Bethlehem, like the Scriptures say. And we know we have the genealogies of Joseph and Mary, so we know that he was from the offspring of David. However, they are misinformed, and so they believe him to be just a man. I think verse 43 in this paragraph here is probably the most significant verse. So there was a division among the people over him. That gets to the point. You see, when we come to the topic of Jesus, there is, or we don't come to a topic that seeks a consensus. It is a topic that divides. Remember Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 and 52, Do not think that I have come to to give peace on earth. That's a striking statement. I thought Jesus came to bring peace. Well, peace in our hearts between us and God, because there was enmity set between us and God before Jesus came. We could not find a way to please God. For everything we did was opposed to God. We're hostile to God. And so there was enmity. There was conflict between us and God. But Jesus came and he broke down that barrier. And so now through belief, if we eat and drink, we can have a relationship with God. And so in that sense, Jesus brings peace. There is now peace between us and God through a mediator, the great high priest, Jesus of Nazareth. In that sense, he brought peace. But that's about the only sense in which he brought peace. In every other way, Jesus came and brought division. He brought conflict. They crucified him. And so he says, Do not think that I have come to bring to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. I suppose it's true, doctrine does divide. Apparently, you've heard that there's record record snowfall in Southern California. You've probably seen the river flowing like crazy. And now it's very warm, right? It's 100 degrees, something like that. Well, all that snow up there in the mountains is melting off. It's coming down. And as the snow on those peaks melts and falls, some of it will fall this direction and some of it will fall on the other side. Well, as the mountains divide the melting snow, Christ divides our lives. If you want to see how true this is, the next time you find yourselves among strangers, tell them that you're a follower of Christ and watch the snow fall. (laughs) 
There's a third action that causes us to examine our response to Jesus. We saw the request of the Redeemer. We saw the pondering of the people. And we have in this final paragraph a third action, and it's the rejection of the rulers. The rejection of the rulers. This paragraph picks up some of the pieces from verse 32, John 7, 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. That is questioning, could he be the Messiah? And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, sent officers to arrest him. We studied that last week. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they joined forces, these enemies joined forces to actually have Jesus arrested. And they were able to, during this week of festival and celebration, they were actually able to get a warrant out on Jesus's, or for Jesus' arrest. And they did that in verse 32. Well, in verses 45 and 46, these officers return to the Pharisees, and they return with a revelation. They said in verse 44, uh, verse 46, well, the Pharisees questioned in verse 45, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. What's striking about their response is the lack of cover-up. Surely they could have found an excuse They didn't want to incite a riot, maybe. They could have thought of different things to kind of cover up their actions, but they don't. They just say it. No one ever spoke like this man. And so, I like what Kent Hughes says, they came to arrest him, but he arrested them. Now, here comes the Pharisees in verse 47. They answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Hey, we're the, we're the leaders. We don't believe in him. But this crowd, they don't even know the law. They just, they, that does not know the law. They are cursed, say the Pharisees. Apparently, the Pharisees are the only ones that haven't been deceived. The crowds, the common people, they are cursed. Why? Because they don't know the law. They accept a man. They actually are following a man who broke the law. Remember, he healed on the Sabbath. He instructed a man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. They're accursed, not us. Enter in Nicodemus. Of course, we know Nicodemus from John 3. We've already met Nicodemus. He's that Pharisee who came to Jesus under the cover of night. You remember what he said to Jesus. We know We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Not really a question, more of a statement. Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As I see it, John 7 here in Nicodemus' words, I think there's some good evidence here that the wind is blowing in Nicodemus' life. Verses 50 and 51. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, to Jesus before, and who was one of them, who was a Pharisee, he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? 
What an insight from Nicodemus. Here the Pharisees were condemning everyone for disregarding the law. And yet Nicodemus puts his finger on their disregard for the law. What irony. The guardians of the law don't keep the law? How about that? Of course, the Pharisees aren't going to acquiesce. And so they reply in verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Are you from that podunk area? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're so blinded by their hatred of Jesus that they forget their own history. They don't realize that actually prophets have come from Galilee. Jonah came from Galilee. Some say Hosea Hosea came from Galilee. They can't see it. They're just blinded by their hatred of Jesus. I like J.C. Ryle as a commentator. He's an old commentator. He makes really good points. He draws out an interesting truth from the life of Nicodemus. He says that Nicodemus teaches us, this is how he puts it, how slowly and gradually the work of grace goes on in some hearts. It's an interesting point. I'd probably call, some, call this something like the process of faith. Theologians call it sanctification. But Ryle's point is not so much about the process, it's more about the speed of the process, or you might say the slowness, at least from our side, the slowness of that process. He writes, The case of Nicodemus is full of useful information, instruction, excuse me. It teaches us that there are diversities in the operation of the Holy Spirit. All are undoubtedly led to the same Savior, but all are not led precisely in the same way. It teaches us that the work of the Spirit does not always go forward with the same speed in the hearts of men. In some cases, it may go forward very slowly indeed, and yet may be real and true, end quote. Nicodemus had come to Jesus 18 months previous to this. 18 months had transpired between that meeting at night and then this text here in John 7. And yet, Nicodemus isn't a disciple of Jesus. He's not known as a disciple. But he is a man who dares to say something in favor of Jesus that I would suspect takes a lot of courage to say. And if we continue, as we continue to see and study the Gospel of John, we'll see Nicodemus again, and we'll see that he will participate in the burial of Jesus and preparing Jesus' body. And in that moment, maybe we don't call him a disciple, but all the disciples have fled. And who's there with Jesus? Nicodemus. Here's a way in which we can sacrificially care for each other. Let's not see everyone's Christian experience through our own eyes. It's true that some run faster than others. Ryle again. It's not always the fastest runner that wins the race. It is not always those who begin suddenly in religion and profess themselves rejoicing Christians who continue steadfast to the end. It breaks my heart that I see that too often. I've seen it too often. He continues, 
Slow work is sometimes the surest and most enduring. No doubt it would be a pleasant thing if everybody who was converted came out boldly, took up the cross, and confessed Christ in the day of his conversion. But, he says, it is not always given to God's children to do so. End quote. I like how my friend Tom Stout puts it. He said, God, God moves at the speed of health. I like that. I think in Nicodemus' life, we see an illustration of God moving at the speed of health. So, here we have three actions that cause us to examine our response to Jesus. We have the request of the Redeemer. We have the pondering of the people. And we have the rejection of the rulers. Where do you find yourself in all of that? Have you drank from the living waters? Are you pondering like they were pondering? Thinking about who Jesus is? He's a prophet. He's Messiah. He's just a man. Have you rejected him? I hope not. As we move to close... I'd like to share a passage from C.S. Lewis's children's novel, The Silver Chair. I don't know if you've read it. It's five or six in the series. It's towards the end. As the story opens, Jill, the character, she encounters a lion in the forest. You probably know enough about at least the first book that the lion is Christ. Fearing the lion, she escapes into the forest and she grows very thirsty. Eventually, she comes up to a stream. However, she approaches the stream, Lewis writes, she stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason, just on this side of the stream lay the lion. Eventually, the lion turned to her and said, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Wonder where Lewis got that. Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered, he answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. He's not going anywhere. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not, not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink. Then you will die of thirst. Oh, dear. Coming another step nearer. Notice how she's drawn closer in the encounter. 
I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, she says. There is no other stream. Never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who ever had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. What a fascinating illustration of this passage. Ken Hughes highlights what I think is most significant. When you come to the water, you are coming to a lion. And you must come, he says, on the lion's terms. You have to yield yourself by faith in order to get to the water. Isn't that what Jill did? She knelt down with the, in the presence of the lion and she drank. He continues, some of us need to realize that we're thirsty, that we need that water so badly that we're going to die without it. We need to step out on faith yielding to the lion of the tribe of Judah and receive the water of eternal life. As Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen.